Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at the time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Grace. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's, uh, actually today's program is a partnership with the um, CLL Society and Cancer Care. And we're delighted with that partnership. And you'll be hearing later on in the program from Patty Kaufman um, uh, more about all of the services and programs and information that the CLL Society provides. Now today's program, the topic is chronic lymphocytic leukemia, current treatment perspectives. And this is part two of living with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And today's program is supported by Biogen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pharmacyclics LLC, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program and for the support of many of our programs that we do. Um, and um, before I introduce our first speaker, I just have um, a few questions I want to ask you. And before I do that, I just want to let you know that there's a lot of you on the call today. We have over 251 participants on the call. You come from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, so from all over the United States. But we also happen to have a number of international participants from um, Australia, Canada, Denmark, England, India, Norway, Poland, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. So this is truly a global call as well. And um, so now before I um, introduce our first speaker, I'm just going to ask you just a few questions. It'll take about maybe two minutes. And um, for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to rate your answers. I'm going to start with the first question. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the significant role of testing and informing treatment choices for chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, and new and emerging treatments. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the first-line treatment options for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the treatment options for relapsed and refractory chronic lymphocytic leukemia. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And there are just two questions left. I understand retesting importance in determining treatment for second and third line treatments for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be our last question. I understand the role of clinical trials for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating.
I want to thank everybody for participating in these questions. It helps us to better tailor the programs to meet your needs. And so thank you very much for participating in this. Um, and now I, it's my pleasure to our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mayziara Shadman. And Dr. Shadman is Associate Professor, Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Associate Professor, Medical Oncology Division, University of Washington, Attending Physician, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Shadman will be addressing review of chronic lymphocytic leukemia in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, significant role of testing in informing your treatment choices, first-line treatment options, treatment, treatment of relapsed and refractory CLL, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments to communicate with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shadman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, it's my pleasure to join you and your colleagues for this uh, very helpful workshop that I have been involved in this in the past couple of years and I've had uh, great feedback from my patients who participated. So my, my task today is to cover a lot of topics in around close to 15 minutes. So I'll try to be uh, really uh, uh, focusing on, on some of the practical points and uh, Hopefully, we'll have time for question and answer at the end. So really, the and I will talk about COVID-19 and how that changes our discussions and our treatment options, um, if it does, at, at the end. But I would like to start uh, by kind of talking about the journey that a CLO patient um, starts from the time of diagnosis and and uh, you know most of the time this this is an incidental finding for for patients when they have a blood work or when they have imaging for a different reason they they get a call and they're told that they have leukemia or they have a type of lymphoma CLL is an interesting disease in a way that it's both leukemia because it involves the the bone marrow which is the blood making factory and also the lymphatic system uh, including lymph nodes and spleen and sometimes liver and uh, uh, you know that that's how that that the diagnosis is uh, basically uh, made in most patients, and of course it creates a lot of anxiety. Uh, uh, diagnosis of leukemia is never uh, something that uh, we are expecting. So um, the first discussions we have with patients is very important to to make sure that we we deliver a few important uh, facts about this disease. The fact that this this is a chronic disease that requires a very strong relationship between the patient and physician from the time of diagnosis, and the fact that at, currently at least uh, we can't cure chronic lymphocytic leukemia uh, at the moment with with the current tools that we have, and I would like to spend a few maybe minutes to to explain this. Uh, cure has a very specific definition in our field, which is medical oncology or hematology, those of us who treat cancer. We use the word cure when we can discharge a patient from our clinic and tell them you don't have to come back because you're done with cancer. We, we have not been able to achieve that goal for CLL. But it doesn't mean that we can't treat it. We, we, we actually have very good treatment options, and we're able to treat our patients and uh, put them in a complete remission or a very close uh, uh, remission, uh, a situation very close to complete remission. And most of our patients these days go for years and years on just the first line of therapy 
uh, without really needing further treatment. And when their disease comes back, they still have many other options. So yes, it's not curable, but it's definitely treatable. And we're, we're making a lot of progress, uh, in the, as, as, as you know, in the past few years. So, so that's, that's another fact. The, 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 the third fact is to make sure we know a lot about this disease. We need to have a very complete understanding about the disease. Of course, part of it is the blood work, but the most important part is uh, is to understand what are the molecular and chromosomal characteristics of this disease. So when we have a new diagnosis of cancer, we tend to ask about the disease stage. And it's important to note that what we use as a staging system for cancers like colon cancer and breast cancer, for example, is very different than what we use for CLL. We're really not focused on the stage three or four, uh, which for other cancers may have a specific meaning in terms of not being um, you know, treatable or outcomes being very poor. We, we really look at the molecular information, and that's our staging system for, for CLL. So in order to have the best information to understand the disease behavior, to be able to predict the disease behavior to our best uh, ability, we uh, certainly recommend having information about the mutations that CLL cells or cancer cells have, about the chromosome changes that we see in the cancer cells, and that will give us a good understanding on what to expect. Now, our predictions are never perfect. So we have patients who may be uh, 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 having findings that may most of the time would indicate an aggressive course and multiple relapses. And, you know, we all have exceptions in our clinic that those patients do really well and also vice versa. But it gives us a pretty good understanding of what to expect from the disease. It's also very important, at least now, because when I talk about the reasons to start treatment, uh, I'll come back to this point and I'll explain why having that molecular information up front would be extremely helpful. So most of us with, with a CLL diagnosis or a relative with a CLL diagnosis, we know that the initial conversation is around the fact that you don't necessarily need to treat every patient. We basically wait and wait and we only offer treatment if we feel that CLL is causing problems for the patient, it's causing clinical symptoms. And those clinical symptoms could range from, um, or basically in three categories. They may drop the blood counts, they may cause enlargement of lymph nodes or liver or spleen, or they may cause general symptoms and some conditions that are autoimmune and may drop the, the blood counts for the different mechanism. So unless those things happen, we usually don't offer treatment to patients. We just watch them and the decision on how often watching the patient and seeing the patient in the clinic is based on how they're behaving. Now, why, why do we do that? The common question is why don't, why don't you just treat it up front? We have done it before when we had chemotherapy as our treatment and we didn't see any, any benefit of starting chemotherapy early. We did not help our patients in terms of the, the relevant outcomes that we're looking for namely patient living longer by starting treatment. So that, that's not a practice we do. But in the past five, six, seven years, we have a new class or more than one actually class of drugs that we use for CLL. And currently there are clinical trials at the national level and at the institutional levels that really try to focus on starting treatment early in patients who are considered high risk. And guess what? How do we know if somebody is high risk? if you have the molecular information and if you have the chromosome information. So that goes back to the point that at the time of diagnosis, 
gather as much as information as you can because we need to know what we're dealing with. Having a molecular test, having a chromosome test, is like having a complete physical exam these days. As we always check for lymph nodes, as we check the spleen and liver in each clinic visit, we of course want to know what type of cancer we're dealing with at the molecular level. So that's the first point in terms of the testing, and I think my colleague will cover the repeat testing for later lines of therapy. And it's not only important for the timing of therapy, as I mentioned, in form of clinical trials. It's important in selecting the best treatment in patients who do need the treatment. Let's say we have a patient who, for, for whatever reason, we're convinced that the CLL is now responsible for some of the symptoms that they have. Again, I'll just summarize a few facts um, because of the, in the interest of time. Uh, fact number one. It's very rare these days for us to use chemotherapy in any CLO patient in the first-line setting. I would say we should never use it. The reason I'm not using the 100% here, there are, unfortunately, there are issues with access to some, some, some of these newer drugs in some patients or very, very specific situations that you may, or some, some physician or some patient may go with chemotherapy. But as a general rule, we have, we have entered a non-chemotherapy era for CLL in the first-line setting and also in the relapse setting. So what we use instead of chemotherapy is a, a, a group of targeted agents. These are drugs that specifically go for the cancer cell. Now, when I say specifically go for cancer, sir, the cancer cells, uh, it doesn't mean that this, they don't have any side effects. The side effects that we see with these novel agents are very different from the type of side effects that we saw with chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is just a high-dose toxin, and it, it kills cancer cells, and it also kills normal cells, and most of the time we get typical side effects from it, like hair loss, nausea, vomiting, and not fe feeling well. Uh, patients had to take time off from work and things like that. You don't see those things with novel agents. Each drug, and depending on which one we use, has uh, specific side effects um, kind of unique to them. I want to be a little bit more specific because this audience, I'm sure they're very knowledgeable about their options. So in general, we have two options in the first-line setting. We have a group of drugs belong to the family of Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or BTK inhibitors. And in that family, we have two FDA-approved medications, ibrutinib and acalabrutinib. They're both approved for first-line treatment. Uh, and there is a third drug, xanabrutinib, that is currently not approved by FDA for CLL. It is expected that maybe at, in the next months uh, we, we see an approval for that for CLL, but at the moment we know that the studies that may lead to the approval are finished and partly reported, and there may be an assessment that's ongoing right now to see if that drug may be added. But in general, think of the Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors as a class that we can definitely use in for first-line setting. These are pills. These are pills that patients take on a daily basis, and they are designed to be continued until patients don't tolerate the medication, for example, for side effect reasons or if, if the drug stops working. So these are continuous and definite therapies. The second family is basically um, uh, 
a family that has one member at the moment, the drug called venetoclax. And it's given in combination with a monoclonal antibody that goes for a specific protein and the CLL cells, in this case, obinutuzumab, which is, which is one of the CD20 targeting monoclonal antibodies. So venetoclax works very differently compared to the BTK inhibitors. It induces remissions at a, at a very deep level. And that gives us the opportunity of um, stopping treatment at, for this, in this case, at one year. So in contrast with BTK inhibitors, where you just continue BTK inhibitors forever, here you stop venetoclax after 12 months. And in the first six months of therapy, they also receive infusions with the obinutuzumab antibody. Now the question is, okay, which one do we go with? There is no head-to-head clinical trials that tells us that one approach is better than the other one. So it's really a discussion between the physician and the patient to talk about the specifics of each therapy. So the highlights are the following. If a patient is interested in a time-limited therapy, meaning that you want to take a treatment, but at some point it's very important for you to stop treatment, you want to go without taking therapy and without having relapsed disease, and then your choice would be venetoclax in combination with CD20 antibody. Venetoclax is a great drug, but it's a lot of work to start. So it requires multiple visits and multiple, uh, basically, trips to the clinic for, in the fir- for the first five weeks of a starting treatment. And before that, we start with the antibody. So you kind of pay the price upfront with like kind of more work and logistically maybe difficult with patients needing caregiver, somebody to drive them to the clinic. But once you get to the stable dose of the drug, and once you stop the treatment, it's great to know that for years and years and with the follow-up that we have, somewhere around 70 to 80% of patients who finish their one-year therapy remain to be in a remission at the three-year follow-up. This is a very significant, uh, uh, what we call a progression-free survival. And the follow-up, is, we get more follow-up with, in each meeting that we, we, we attend and with each publication. So this, this number will be updated uh, once or twice a year. On the other hand, if you have a patient who, for example, we have we have patients who don't mind taking a pill for for a longer duration of time they they take many medications for conditions like diabetes and chronic conditions and they don't mind taking a pill they don't have the time or interest or um, uh, resources to make multiple trips for for the first couple of months, and they go on the BTK inhibitor and they continue, and as long as they don't have side effects, they continue that. So really, discussions, and as I said, um, there's uh, at the moment there is no pre- preferred choice in terms of the efficacy. I mean, they're both great options. You don't go wrong by picking any of the two options, but it's really the matter of how much interest is there for stopping treatment, and also. And, of course, uh, each drug has a side effect profile that we match that with patients' medical history. For example, BTK inhibitors, you need to be uh, mindful of side effects like high blood pressure, like atrial fibrillation, risk of bleeding, what other medications they're taking, and things like that. So that would be a discussion between the physician and the doctor. And in case of BTK inhibitors, ibrutinib or acalabrutinib, the, co- the treatment continues until um, uh, there's there's uh, issues with the tolerance or the, the disease starts growing. And in case of venetoclax, we, we most of the time, in general, stop at one year, and then we monitor the patient clinically. 
And in both cases, the disease can, can come back, right? It may come back. Uh, and if that happens, the other class that we did not use in the first place could be used in the second place. So it's important for patients to know that by, by choosing one of the two options, you're not limiting yourself for the later lines of therapy. You can actually go with the other option later. And, um, you know, we really don't want to and can't get to, to a lot of details. I'm really covering some of the basics and general principles here. But the, the message is that the, your two best classes are BTK inhibitors and venetoclax and a combination with the CD20 antibody. Now, in the the question of, okay, with from the family of Burton tires and kinase inhibitors, you told me there are three drugs. Which one is better? There has been head-to-head -head studies comparing ibrutinib with acalabrutinib and another study comparing ibrutinib with zanabrutinib. I think the take-home point is that in terms of efficacy, meaning that how good they work for CLL, it doesn't seem to be a difference, but in terms of the side effect profile, for example, acalabrutinib showed to have a fewer, uh, significantly lower rate of having uh, side effects like uh, atrial fibrillation, hypertension, and some of the other side effects. With zanabrutinib, um, there was also um, a lower rate of atrial fibrillation, um, and um, in the initial report, at least, there was maybe a signal that maybe, maybe there is some improved uh, efficacy, but that's something we need to wait for longer follow-up and, and some uh, more details from that data. But in terms of the side effect profile, I think the take-home message is that acalabrutinib is the FDA-approved drug for CLL and zanabrutinib. Uh, a drug that may be added to our portfolio in the next few months, they both have a better safety than toxicity profile compared to ibrutinib. So in patients who have both options, uh, we go with the second-generation BTK inhibitor, and second-generation BTK inhibitors are acalabrutinib or zanabrutinib. Now, um, I think I, I would probably need to, uh, and I don't know how I'm doing on time, but um, basically a few words on COVID-19 and how that would change our treatment strategy. There are many factors we need to consider. Number one, how bad is the COVID situation? And, you know, fortunately, I assume in most places we are seeing a, a trend towards uh, lower incidence and lower prevalence of this infection. That That's great news. Number two, how protected our patients are. Are they vaccinated? Have they received both booster doses? Have they received the monoclonal antibody that uh, some patients could receive? These are all important factors. And in principle, we know that patients with the CLO diagnosis uh, are at a higher risk of getting the infection, both, both because of the disease and because of the treatments that they receive for it. Some treatments seem to be um, uh, negatively impacting the response to the vaccine, namely monoclonal antibodies that I mentioned. One example of it, obinutuzumab, the other one is rituximab. So in patients who had their exposure to these antibodies within the past uh, 12 months, because most of the studies looked at 12 months, their response to the vaccine seemed to be uh, much lower. Now, remember, this is a very dynamic discussion. This was the finding at the time of initial vaccinations. We are in a different time right now. Most of our patients are vaccinated and they've received booster doses. Remember one thing, I think the take-home point from hopefully this small uh, discussion we have today, we should never compromise the treatment of CLL because of a concern for COVID. We can make adjustments and we 
we did that uh, early in the pandemic or in the, at the peak of the pandemic. We made decisions to minimize patients' trip to the clinic. We sometimes adjusted our treatment strategy to maybe skip one of the drugs that we thought would be more harmful. But as I said, the situation is changing, and we are also learning that in patients whose CLL is well-treated, their immune system actually shows a recovery, and those patients actually sometimes show responses pretty close to patients who, who have a normal immune system. So the principle is to make sure if somebody needs treatment for CLL, we should not delay that. We have seen cases who, unfortunately, back in 2020, uh, who waited for months before starting treatment because of the concerns, but the, the complications of that are definitely more significant than, uh, or, or probably as significant as having, having a COVID-19 infection. Uh, a few words and I'll finish. Um, importance of vaccination, I think we are, um, there's no need to repeat, but uh, our patients do need to be vaccinated. We recommend boosters and the second one five months after the first booster. Number two, in terms of uh, if, if there is access to Evershield, and you know that may be a topic that my colleague will discuss, uh, that that's highly recommended. Number three, in terms of um, how now that you know most of the states in the U.S. and or maybe other countries are relaxing the the rules for physical distancing, how should we uh, react to that as 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 a CLO community and patients? Uh, I believe that at the end of the day, we should move towards getting to the normal life, but we, we need to prioritize the events that we're attending. We need to have a good understanding of our different factors that I just mentioned, the vaccination status, uh, whether or not we've had the monoclonal antibody, what is our treatment status? Am I taking an active treatment that may compromise my immune system? And in my opinion, these days at least, until we know for sure that COVID is gone or is close to be gone, I think we should prioritize the type of activities that we are deciding to do or participate in. And, and each patient should make that decision. I get asked this question every single day in clinic asking me specific questions about this event and whether or not they should attend. I don't know the answer. I don't even know the answer for myself. So I think we all need to decide and make a make a judgment. And uh, and of course, discussing it with the physician makes a lot of sense and helps. But uh, a lot of these decisions are very dynamic and change on a weekly basis at this time. Uh, I'll stop here. And I don't know uh, again if I have more time, I can continue. But probably I'll I'll come back with the Q and A sec uh, section to to answer more questions. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Shadman. That was really outstanding. A wonderful way to start the program off. You covered a lot of different topics, and I think that people will be very interested to have questions for you for the Q&A as well. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Adam Kate, and Dr. Kate is Assistant Professor, Division of Hematology, Department of Internal Medicine, Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Kate will be addressing retesting importance in determining treatment for second and third line treatments, current perspectives on new and emerging treatments for, of CLL, updates on clinical trials and their significance for CLL, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kate. 
thanks for having me here today. Always happy to talk about CLL. So the first topic uh, is going to be retesting importance and determining treatment for second and third line treatments. So this is a really debatable topic. I think that if you ask any uh, physician to treat CLL, we might have a different answer for this. But for the most part, uh, there aren't really any recommended tests specifically to determine what treatment to give in the first and second line. Oftentimes, some providers might track your flow cytometry or your MRD status um, as, as time goes on to see how your disease is progressing or getting worse over time. But neither of those things will really sort of uh, uh, comment on uh, what treatment to give in the second or third line. I think the only thing that might change a provider's decision on what to give might be TP53 status. That's testing uh, deletion 17P on fish or doing next-gen sequencing to determine if someone has a TP53 mutation. As um, sometimes providers might choose to use a BPK inhibitor if you have uh, one of these findings at progression. But for the most part, um, in terms of testing at progression, uh, there is really no advanced testing that really tells us what to pick second and third line. As uh, Dr. Shodman has suggested, typically we give whatever wasn't given in the first line. So if someone got a BTK inhibitor such as a calibrated or a brutinib in the first line, we usually give venetoclax in the second line and vice versa. The one thing that I will suggest is that if there's any concern for Richter syndrome when CLL transforms into an aggressive uh, lymphoma like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, then testing and imaging is recommended specifically at PET-CT. And so if you have any concerns that you might have developed Richter's based off uh, worsening symptoms, specifically night sweats, fevers, chills, weight loss, and fatigue, or a big lymph node, that would be where I would do a lot of different testing and imaging. But otherwise, there's no specific testing to help us determine what treatment to pick in the second and third line. We next will talk about current perspectives on new and emerging treatments for CLL. So there are three treatments that I want to highlight in this, in this conversation. And uh, I think these treatments uh, will hopefully be approved in the next uh, year or so. The first is combination abrutinib and venetoclax. So Dr. Shodman had talked a lot about abrutinib and venetoclax. Um, and now we're looking uh, to uh, combine these two agents to see if they work together better than if someone were to get them sequentially, one after the other. So this combination uh, leads to high response rates in the recent clinical trial that was published. Um, and the registrational trial that will lead to its approval has been completed, and we should see this approval sometime in the next year. So this combination, as I said, has, has, has seen high response rates. However, there has been some side effects, not, not from just one of these medications, but from a combination of both of these medications. There's been no new side effects that have occurred, um, but the side effect profile of both of them does occur if you take them together. Uh, there is a trial ongoing uh, where we're able to see if this combination is better than getting the medications one and after the other, um, as we do treat now, um, but that's still pending. The next medication, which Dr. Shaman had mentioned, is xanabrutinib, and xanabrutinib is a second-generation inhibitor like acalabrutinib. Um, and like acalabrutinib, it had been compared to abrutinib and appears to be better tolerated. The only specific side effect of xanabrutinib is a low neutrophil count, which should be monitored, um, but it does not have the headache that we see with acalabrutinib. And unlike gay calibrutinib, you can give it with a proton pump inhibitor for heartburn. So for patients who are on uh, pentoprazole or meprazole for heartburn, we typically try to avoid a calibrutinib because there's an interaction there, but you can give xanabrutinib. Um, last is the combination of umbralisib plus uplituximab, 
Umbralizib is a PI3K inhibitor, a pill that works differently uh, than what was already approved, and ublituximab is an infusion like obinutuzumab and rituximab. Um, this combination might be good for patients that can't get a BTK inhibitor or pneumoclax for whatever reason. Um, the current paradigm, as Dr. Shabman had mentioned, and as I mentioned before, is to give a BTK inhibitor followed by a BCL2 inhibitor. And the current need for patients with CLL is those patients who have received both of these medications in the past and have progressed on them. And so there's been a lot of data, a lot of research being done to discover resistance mechanisms to these therapies, how we can overcome them, and what works after patients have already received these, received these treatments. So one specific treatment uh, that um, is currently being studied is something called pirtabrutinib. It, it was previously called Loxo305. There's another medication in the same class called MS1026, which doesn't have a name yet, which is also Arcule 531. So these two medications, both of them are next generation uh, BTK inhibitors like ibrutinib and acalabrutinib and zamabrutinib, but they bind slightly differently to the target of BTK that is what's responsible for signaling in the CLL cells. So this particular medication, um, pirtabrutinib and MS1026, um, were specifically developed to work in patients who've received ibrutinib and acalabrutinib in the past. And so far, both medications have a really good safety profile, and we're excited to see um, how, these develop, how these medications are developed moving forward with uh, trials that are meant to get approval for both of these medications currently underway. Another exciting uh, therapy that's being developed is CAR-T, or chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. This has been around uh, for the last few years for lymphoma, but in fact, it was first studied for patients with CLL. Um, the treatment uses patients' own T-cells and modifies them to attack the CLL. There was a recent news article that many of you saw that documented the outcomes of the first three patients who were first treated with CAR-T, um, and it was exciting to see that these patients were still in remission. Uh, furthermore, there's a study called Transcend004, which is still ongoing, that showed that CAR-T by itself or paired with ibrutinib can induce great responses in patients with CLL, even for patients who've received prior um, BTK inhibitor or venetoclax, and venetoclax, I should say. However, CAR-T still comes with a lot of toxicity, and where it will fall in the treatment paradigm is yet to be determined, but it's exciting to see that this treatment might work for patients with CLL, especially for those patients with refractory disease to BTK inhibition and BCL2 inhibition. In addition to lysosel, active research is being implemented looking at um, different things for the CAR-T to target on the outside of CLL. Um, other, CLL other cellular therapies, such as NK cells, and also other various uh, therapies that can be, can be combined with CAR-T to boost its function and hopefully mitigate its toxicity. So I think um, having talked about uh, the pirtabrutinib, the MS1206, and the Transcend004 study, this is a good uh, segue to, to talk about clinical trials and their significance for CLL. So in order to get one of those therapies that I just mentioned, it, it can only be done as a clinical trial. And clinical trials are really important. And the reason why they're important is because this is how we tell what medications might work for CLL in a controlled fashion. So in talking about clinical trials, uh, there's four different phases of clinical trials. Uh, phase one is when we first introduce a specific treatment, um, either first in human or first in a disease type, and we're trying to get to the dose that is tolerated and should be brought forward in further trials. So it's really for safety, a phase one trial. Uh, phase two trial is the second step. So we have the dose, and we are looking to see whether or not the specific medication or combination um, is inducing responses in patients with CLL or other diseases to see if it's worthwhile to bring to the phase three setting. So the phase three trial are the largest trials, 
And this is when we take whatever experimental treatment we have and we compare it to standard of care. And this is what usually leads to approval of that medication by the Food and Drug Administration. Lastly, phase four is a post-marketing study um, that you can't enroll into. It's when drug companies look to see how their drug is working across the United States. So in terms of clinical trials and their significance for CLL, um, you know, I encourage all my patients to consider a clinical trial um, if they are eligible and if we have one available for them. Um, in the world of CLL, for the most part, you aren't going to get a placebo. You're not going to get a sugar pill. Um, and, I and I like to highlight that for my patients. Um, for the most part, you're going to get a drug that probably works, um, and we're trying to see how well it works. Um, and uh, if you're either going to get that experimental drug, and it's going to be compared to something that's standard of care. So I had mentioned earlier that the combination ibrutinib and venetoclax um, is currently being studied versus standard of care. So there's an ongoing trial that is comparing ibrutinib, venetoclax, plus obinutuzumab versus ibrutinib um, or obinutuzumab, and patients are randomized to either arms of those studies. And so ultimately the goal is to determine whether or not the triplet therapy is superior than giving the ibrutinib by itself followed by the nucleox. Um, last, you know, I just want to comment that clinical trials offer the opportunity to improve what we already know about CLL in hopes of making improvements in survival, um, treatment-free time, and also quality of life. So we'll segue now to a totally different topic, um, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, um, including technology, prepare list of questions, follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes. So let's talk um, about telemedicine. In my opinion, the pandemic did expedite our move towards more telemedicine, which is a good thing. Different states have different rules about telemedicine, so please contact your local provider if you are interested in pursuing this option. Telemedicine can also be a particularly good thing for our patients with CLL, as it's a chronic disease most reliant on following lab results, and discussions can be done over the phone or video. Telemedicine usually involves a telephone conversation or a video visit using a variety of different methods. If you have a telemedicine visit planned, make sure you are familiar with the technology required. Try logging into the platform before your visit so you understand the login process, as communication can sometimes be a little less personal during one of these visits, and clarity can be an issue. I would recommend the plans for the questions prior to logging into your visit. Questions to discuss with your provider should include any symptom you are experiencing and what your most recent lab tests show. Recently, I spent a lot of time talking about COVID with my patients as well. Inquiring with your provider about any updates about COVID may be useful as well. This will, let's take a second to talk about Ebuchel, because I know it's a topic that we are talking about a lot with our CLL patients. Ebuchel is pre-exposure prophylaxis, meaning that we give it before you get COVID, and the point is to decrease your risk of getting COVID. Um, and it was studied in patients who were over 65 or who were, were younger than 65 who were immunocompromised or had other comorbidities. And what they showed was that with Ebuchel, it did, did decrease the likelihood chance of getting COVID. It's a two-shot series. Um, that's given at the same time. And the only side effect that was really something to highlight in the study was that patients who had a previous history of a heart attack were more likely to have a heart attack with the drug, but this was only in patients who had a previous history of a heart attack. So please talk to your provider if you are a candidate for, 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 for Ebuchel um, and ask about what its um, availability in your area is. Uh, last but certainly not least, make sure your, your phone, iPad, or computer is either plugged or charged in prior to starting the visit if you have a telehealth visit. Um, switching gears for a hot second, let's talk about uh, the new implication of open notes. So open notes is a research initiative started out of Harvard, encouraging physicians to share their notes with patients. Um, this would allow patients to enable their full legal right to their medical record. 
There have been more and more data coming out supporting this initiative, showing that patients who have access to their notes understand their medical condition more, have more control of their health decisions, and are able to catch errors or inaccuracies in the record. Um, so uh, what is an open note? A note is in any documentation that a physician writes about your medical case. And an open note is a note that the patient can see. So in general, you should have access to anything your physician writes about you in their note, as well as all results. One of the main concerns about open notes is that you will receive bad news before a physician has a chance to talk to you about it. This is a real concern and should not be taken lightly. And one way to avoid this is to potentially not look at your test results before you hear from a provider. This is incredibly hard to do, likely not a plausible solution, and requires a lot of self-discipline from our patients. But to, be, um, to, 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 to calm some patients' nerves, there's been some research research that shows that these worries are not really founded. Investigators surveyed um, over 3,000 patients and 96 listed clinicians, and they found that 98% of patients thought open notes was a good idea. Um, and interestingly, 44% of oncologists thought that patients would be confused by the notes, whereas only 4% of patients felt that they were confused. In other studies of Sloan Kettering and Duke, the benefit of open notes was clear, with over 90% of patients saying that it improved their understanding of their disease. Overall, many providers are in fact finding that open notes help patients stay informed. Many patients are reading their prior notes before coming in to see their physician, allowing them to understand their disease and follow up to do items listed in their notes. To me, open notes is a great opportunity. I always tell my patients and caregivers that I worry when they are not asking questions, and I find that with open notes, they're asking more, more, more questions that are more in line with their medical care and uh, let me understand that they, for, that they definitely understand what's going on. So uh, let's uh, move on to the importance of follow-up with your healthcare team to understand and interpret open notes. Open notes will only allow patients and caregivers to become more active in their care. However, it is important to highlight the questions I brought up earlier, the potential to find out, quote, bad news from an email or to read something in a note that might cause some distress. There are a couple points to be made here about interpretations of results. Although most results are binary, such as high versus low, abnormal or normal, big versus little, results need to be interpreted by your provider. Many results are not as binary as depicted in the finalized results. For example, uh, patients might see for their CLL that they have IGHV mutated status. And while mutated sounds bad, it's actually a good prognostic sign, which could cause patients to be concerned. Um, another example um, is if a lymph node size increases from, from one to two centimeters, this might read in a radiology report that there's significant increase in lymph node size. Whereas if you ask your CLL provider if a change in lymphocyte size from one to two centimeters over two years, it's a very minute change and it's not something to worry about. My point is that for many of our results, they need interpretation by a clinician. That's why it's important to maintain open communication with your provider to discuss your results as they happen. Let's just move on to key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. In the past 10 years, we have had many newly approved agents for CLL. I like to think that we have enough medications that we can find the right medication for any patient. Right doesn't necessarily mean the most effective. In fact, many of the treatments we have have not been compared to each other, so we are not even 100% sure which is the most effective. Right might mean the medication that causes the least toxicity in any particular patient that allows them to live the lifestyle that they want to live. I want to encourage you that if something's not working for you, that you should talk to your physician about it. There are many things that we can do to make side effects less pronounced, including a dose hold, a reduction, retiming, or giving supportive medications, or even switching the medication entirely. That is why no matter what you're experiencing as a provider, we want to know about it. 
As this is a chronic disease where our patients live with this disease for years, it's important to live your life to the fullest during this time and to maximize the quality of your life during this time. Besides for medication-induced toxicity, many of our patients suffer from anxiety, especially during the watch and wait period, not knowing what treatment will be like or what the future will hold. If you're experiencing these symptoms, it's important to let your provider to know to get the help that you need to improve your quality of life. I think some of the key questions to ask your provider are any questions that you really have. All questions are warranted, and as a provider, we can't fix something unless we know about it. We have a lot of experience in treating disease, experience treating disease and, giving these, and giving treatments for CLL, and therefore can help navigate any concern you may have. I want to end this talk by highlighting that our medications for CLL are becoming better and safer. More therapies are being developed for CLL constantly, and there's only hope on the horizon. Thanks again for having me today, and I look forward to, having, to answering any questions you may have. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kate. That was really wonderful. Just an amazing coverage of a lot of topics, and um, I know there'll be a lot of questions for you during the Q and A. Thank, thank you so much. Thanks. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Patty Kaufman, um, and Ms. Kaufman is the co-founder and communications director for the CLL Society Inc. And she'll be discussing the CLL Society's free programs and practical support to cope with CLL and we'll give you information about how to contact them. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Coffin, who is a and CLL Society, which is a collaborating organization, a partner organization on today's program. Thanks so much, Carolyn. Um, yes, first I would like to speak to the issue of the availability of Ebusheld. Ebusheld has been difficult to access for many of our patients. There are published reports indicating that the government will soon be reducing its distribution. As the available supply will likely shrink over the next several months, time is of the essence. Please consider the following, which you may not be aware of. Many smaller community and rural hospitals have unused doses of Evusheld. But before driving for hours, call ahead to the pharmacy, ask about their supply, and ask about their policy. Find out what they recommend that you do to prepare. Any healthcare provider, including your primary care provider, can write a prescription for Evusheld. It does not have to be your hematologist. If you are able to locate Evusheld at any of these smaller facilities, they will find out whether or not they will accept an order from your own physician if your own physician is not a part of their system. Alternatively, please ask, can you see a healthcare provider on their staff who will write the prescription and arrange for you to get the shots all in one visit. Lastly, there are some concierge services that will come to your home, but these can be costly. Google Concierge and Evusheld. On the front page of CLL Society's website, you will find the CLL Society's continually updated COVID-19 action plan. The COVID-19 action plan deals with all aspects of the disease, including how to prevent COVID infections, what supplies to have in your home, what to do if you test positive for COVID, and most importantly, what your options are for early management immediately after exposure. The COVID-19 action plan has user-friendly checklists and includes critical links to government sites to help you locate preventative therapies as well as treatments for COVID-19. Next, we invite you to learn along with the CLL Society through these three services, CLL Society-specific CLL specific support groups, our conference coverage, and our education on demand. 
CLL Society specific support groups. Don't spend another month alone. CLL Society runs 38 CLL specific support groups across the United States and Canada. They are a place of camaraderie, strategy sharing among CLL patients and caregivers, and they are under the guidance of CLL Society trained facilitators. They're a hub of learning, and they're swift conduits for CLL breaking news and cutting-edge research information, such as you learned about from the physicians on this program today. Strengthen your connection to the very best care. Go to CLLsociety.org and register to join our support groups today. Our conference coverage. Clinical trials can read out their data multiple times per year, and that is why, year after year, for over a decade, CLL Society's founders, staff, and physician partners have written articles and conducted video interviews covering all of the major hematology <clears throat> conferences to report on the latest clinical trials. Education on demand. CLL Society maintains a video archive of its webinars, forums, and virtual community meetings, and you can access them on your own time. Many are timely and deal with the critical breaking news important to CLL patients and caregivers, but others are evergreen, and they're enduring in their good, solid advice about how to handle the challenges of CLL. Just to name a few. Just diagnosed. What do I need to know? Dealing with the CLL emotional roller coaster. Veterans with CLL, how to get benefits and the care that you deserve, getting maximum benefit from your doctor appointments, learning to decode your blood test results, and giving <clears throat> care to the caregiver. Next, CLL Society has developed two critical free services related to your treatment, test before treat and expert access. Test before treat. Predictive and prognostic testing are critical before choosing any therapy for your CLL, and your life may depend on getting the appropriate testing before treatment. These tests can help determine which therapies will work and which will not. We recommend the following action items. Insist that you are told what your IGVH, FISH, and TP53 status are before any therapy. Make sure that your doctor knows that certain findings such as deletion 70 <clears throat> or TP53 mutation or unmutated IGBH predict that chemotherapy will likely not work. Please refer to our handy test before treat one pager. You can print it out and take it with you to your doctor's appointment whenever a new treatment therapy is being discussed. In short, your therapy must be compatible with what your tests reveal. Next, expert access. If you are awake at night worrying that you are not receiving the best care for your CLL, consider getting a free expert second opinion through CLL Society's Expert Access Program. This gives you an opportunity to have a free 30-minute face-to-face HIPAA-compliant second opinion video consult in which the CLL expert will review your medical records and answer your questions. To qualify, you only need to meet three criteria have a diagnosis of CLL, live in the United States, not currently be in the care of a CLL expert. There is a survival advantage to being cared for by a CLL expert. And now, stay tuned for the following. There will be a lot of excitement soon at the end of spring around the CLL Society's debut of its redesigned website. And last but not least, we encourage you to look forward to Tuesdays 
Make Tuesday special. Come to our website at CLLsociety.org and sign up for our Tuesday weekly newsletter called CLL Society This Week. Thank you for being on this call. It is an important step in your CLL learning, and it's perfectly in step with CLL Society's motto, Smart Patients Get Smart Care. That's Smart Patients Get Smart Care. Have a great day. Thank you for having us here today. Thank you, Ms. Coffin. That was wonderful. And now um, we're going to um, move on to um, just a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to um, move on to the Q&A. Um, so uh, Cancer Care is a national organization um, providing free uh, psychosocial support, which means emotional, practical, and financial assistance to people who are living with um, all cancers, including CLL. Um, so what do those programs look like? We do have a hope line that you can call. It's an 800 number that you can call. And um, our oncology social workers, about 40, 40 of them, will answer the phone and will address your questions and concerns and tell you about all those different services you can access. Um, we also offer, uh, again, this practical financial assistance and co-payment assistance, which really helps enormously with people's costs of care. Um, we do have a case management unit, so if we don't have the services that you need, um, our, our staff our staff in that unit will actually virtually take you to those resources that you might need. It might be around food insecurity or rent or mortgage, any of those kinds of problems that you may be having and help you to resolve those issues and stay with you until they're resolved. We also offer online support groups, um, really hundreds of them per year and actually on many different, uh, for many different uh, types of cancers, including CLL, and also for people who are caregivers, who are young adults, older adults, middle-aged adults, partners, caregivers, so all those different groups of people. Um, and an online group is nice because it actually isn't in real time. It's actually occurring 24 hours a day in any time zone, and then it is moderated by one of our oncology social workers. We do offer these workshops, and we do also offer publications. And now, um, before we move on to the Q&A, I'm just going to ask you a few questions, take about two minutes, and then we're going to move right on to the Q&A. So please get your questions. Some of you have already posted questions, but um, we'll, we'll uh, move on to, the, um, to the, the questions right now. So for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to address these questions, answer the questions, and, um, and we appreciate you doing that. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the significant role of testing and informing treatment choices for chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, and new and emerging treatment, treatments for CLL. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of first-line treatment options for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the treatment options for relapsed and refractory CLL. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of retesting importance in determining treatment for second and third line treatments for CLL. 
One is the highest trading and five the lowest trading. And the last question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of participating in clinical trials for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank everybody for participating in these questions. It will help us as we move on planning programs into, the, into 2022 to tailor them to best meet your needs. And now I'm going to ask Grace to bring all of our speakers on board. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if Grace will tell you how to queue up the questions, Grace. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And um, I have a question from one of our online participants, um, and this is for Dr. Shadman. What's the latest uh, research on the safety of the brutinib treatment holidays and the effect of such treatment holidays on brutinib side effects? Well, if I understand the question right, is, is it? Uh, I don't know if it's referring to planned holidays or patients who have to hold treatment because of the adverse events. I try to. Well, so what's the latest research on the safety of ibrutinib treatment holidays? and the effect of such treatment holidays on ibrutinib side effects? If you could just answer that question in a general way. Yeah, I mean, in general, I, I, you know, I'll kind of cover both uh, possibilities. So we, we don't plan for treatment holidays, and but we do know that in patients who, at least on one study in patients who had to stop treatment because of the side effects, and, you know, in those patients had like more than two years of therapy, uh, a good number of them have, could continue off treatment without having a disease relapse. So uh, it, I, I guess the point is we don't plan to, to give treatment holidays in patients who are taking ibrutinib, but if you have to stop it for a side effect reason, some of the patients can go without treatment for a while. Uh, we do know that treatment interruption of the side effects could adversely impact the long-term efficacy in some other patients. So it's really a case-by-case -case discussion. Many factors, disease behavior, how much time have they been on treatment before you, you stop it for side effects. Some cytogenetic and molecular subtypes do more aggressively and you can't even have patient off treatment for a long time. Some other patients can go for, for a longer period of time. Um, again, the question can cover many uh, areas, but I think I, I I, t I try to cover cover two or three aspects of it. Excellent. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. And uh, for Dr. Katai, um, should I still get a vaccine booster if I've had Evusheld injections? I have had three Moderna shots. So the Evusheld injections are not a substitute for the vaccine. So we are still recommending that patients uh, get all four shots of the vaccine. So that includes three mRNA shots followed by a booster or the J&J &J followed by two mRNA shots um, plus Evusheld. Um, yeah, we, 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 we recommend this because all of these treatments have a very low side effect profile with the chance of protecting you um, as much as we can. And so we are just, it's not a substitute to get the Evusheld for the booster. We're recommending the booster plus the Evusheld if possible. 
And uh, this question uh, for Dr. Kate, my primary care physician got an alert on my current meds. It was regarding having a Mirena IUD uh, being not good for CLL patients. Are you aware of this being an issue? I am not aware of that being an issue. Um, I, uh, the Mirena IUD should only have local hormonal um, effect, not systemic hormonal effect. I have, I have not heard of that being an issue. Dr. Shabman, have you? No, I have not. Okay, excellent. Okay. So please go back to your physician and ask the question again, what that's all about. Okay. Um, so this question for Dr. Shadman, does boosting up my immunity mean I am speeding up my CLL in general? And isn't a vaccine a stimulant to the immune system? Can, I speed, can it speed up the CLL by elevating the WBC lymphocyte count? No, well, the, the answer is no. So the the vaccines we use for different viruses in this and specifically COVID, they target the specific part of the immune system, and uh, that there is no data. Uh, first of all, it doesn't make any biological sense for such interventions, namely vaccine, to increase your rate of uh, CLL aggressiveness or or disease, disease behavior, so that doesn't biologically make sense, and there's also no data indicating that. Uh, you know, what the vaccine does, it basically triggers a specific parts of the immune system to make the antibody and also to cause some uh, T-cell memory uh, in, in, in case of future infections. But the, the reason why CLL um, uh, basically appears and the, the, the origin of the disease are a very different area in the immune system. So the, this should not be a reason not to uh, basically get vaccinated. So we're talking about immune system as, as as a one entity, but this is really much more complicated than just having uh, one target for two different uh, agents like vaccine or, or having a disease coming back. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Thank you for the answer. Um, and last question that we'll, ha we'll take now is from for Dr. Kate. What is the expected quality of life during and after first and second line treatment? Um, uh, in CL patients with 11Q deletions? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll try to answer this question the best I can. So deletion 11Q used to be a, a poor prognostic factor where um, patients who had it did worse if they received chemotherapy. But it appears with our new therapy, the brunibic calibrinib, the neoplast, everything that we went over, that deletion 11Q does not have as much of an impact as it used to. It, it, in fact, it doesn't seem to be a prognostic factor anymore. Um, so, um, in terms of uh, quality of life of patients between first and second treatment, um, the goal is to find a medication that works for you, that you tolerate well, um, that, that preserves the quality of life as best it can. So, uh, talk to your provider about what medication uh, would work for you the best to, to preserve your quality of life, and I think it is achievable. Thank you. And one late last breaking question for Dr. Shadman, and that's it, because we are running over slightly. I'm relatively early in my CL journey, diagnosed about six years ago, still under watch and wait. Have some of the symptoms like fatigue and night sweats, but they are more at the level of annoyance than life-altering. Are there things I should be watching for in terms of starting to look at first-line treatment more closely? You could just answer this in a general way. 
uh, Dr. Shah. Right, right. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I mean, the, again, going back to the three reasons to start treatment, right? If, if for example, our blood counts are normal, uh, and again, remember, I'm, if you know that I did not talk about the lymphocyte count and how high it is and how fast that goes up, that that's no longer a reason to start someone in treatment in the absence of other other. Uh, uh, in the indication. So if somebody's blood counts are normal, if some, if there's no evidence of lymph nodes that are large or rapidly enlarging, and the only concern is like this, in this case, lack of energy or fatigue and some some of the non-specific and more general symptoms, we have to be really careful to make sure we are ruling out other reasons for those symptoms. You know, fatigue is a very common. Uh, problem. I mean, there are many, many factors that could uh, really cause it. You know, look at uh, medical comorbidities. If, if there's a diagnosed, concurrent diagnosis of a chronic disease like diabetes or um, sometimes age, sometimes hormonal problem, sometimes sleep apnea. So what I do, I make sure that I 100% rule out other possible causes for fatigue. And it's a big commitment. I mean, we talk about how safe these drugs are and how, uh, compared to chemotherapy, how the side effect profiles are uh, much improved. But at the end of the day, we're talking about committing someone to start treatment, and this is cancer treatment and requires a lot of uh, basically focus from the physician and from the, from the patient. So uh, in terms of what to watch, I think if the symptoms are getting worse and we don't have another explanation for it, I think then we would need to look at the CLL status a little bit more closely. Uh, we don't routinely do CT scans, for example, to look for the lymph nodes and how fast they're growing in a patient who doesn't have symptoms. But in someone who does have symptoms, and let's say they ruled out everything else in their best ability, working with their primary physician, and they have progressive fatigue and lack of energy, it does make sense to perform an imaging and make sure that we have a good understanding of the size of the lymph nodes in the spleen and liver. And if there is any concern there, then of course that would be an indication for treatment. Uh, so basically, number one, ruling out other causes for the symptom, and number two, looking more specifically at the CLL situation. Uh, but uh, I usually take my time and make sure that patient spends a few months with their primary physician to make sure there's no other reason for the symptoms they're reporting before I start thinking about treatment. Thank you. I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank those who have posted such wonderful questions and the speakers have been addressing them. Um, I know we could go on for a good part of the afternoon. There are many, many questions here. Um, so I'm going to wrap this up because we're a little bit over time. Um, but I want to thank our speakers and I want to thank our participants. But I do want to acknowledge that we do have people with questions still to ask. So let's, let me address those right away because that's really important. Um, for those of you who have a question that you asked or would like to ha have, a, have posted a question to ask but we haven't been able to get to your question or have a question that you would like to ask but didn't quite think it all through, um, please return to your healthcare team. What you've learned today, you need to take that back to your healthcare team and you, you need to have your healthcare team respond um, to your question. Uh, as you've learned today, all questions are wonderful and to some extent they're important to you to get them answered and answered in a way that really helps you. Um, we also, you all have, of course, heard um, about the CLL Society and all the services that it offers. So in addition to your healthcare team, a very credible resource for you to go to 
and the only uh, place that specializes in CLL um, as a nonprofit organization is the CLL Society. And so the information they're providing, um, uh, the expert, all the different services they offer are things that you definitely would like to take advantage of as well. At the end of today's program, or probably by tomorrow, you'll be getting a Survey Monkey from us. We would like you to complete that, but in addition to the Survey Monkey evaluation of the program, we also will be providing you with all the resources that were mentioned today. Um, so links to the CLL Society, the Cancer Care, to any other organizations that we think would be of help to you. But remember, your healthcare team consists of many different people. So if you're having financial problems, remember part of your healthcare team does include financial specialists. It does include oncology nurses. It includes, of course, your physician. It includes oncology social workers, patient navigators. There's a host of people in your team at your hospital or at the, in the doctor's office that can actually provide you help. So do also go to your um, a doctor's office. Um, that's really important for information. And um, also, I, as we conclude, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with CLL. You've learned about a host of services that you can access from the CLL Society, and so take advantage of those. Take advantage of cancer care. And again, um, please uh, recognize that you there is a community of support out there for you. It's up to you to kind of utilize it for your benefit and for your health. That's really important. And your healthcare team, of course. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.